from Fresh Air Studios in Plymouth, this is In Conversation With, the podcast from Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce. With special guests, Bill Martin of Reach PLC. The phrase, the uncomfortable truth, is sometimes what journalism is all about. Sometimes the truth is uncomfortable for individuals or groups or society in general, if you know what I mean. I think it's vital, and I'll still say, in this country, we're lucky to have the press we've got. And Mark White from Practice Plus. I've got to be careful. Sometimes our receptionists make the mistake of calling it Platypus Hospital. Hello there, I'm Stuart Elford, Chief Executive of Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce with another In Our In Conversation with series of podcasts. And today I'm joined by Bill Martin. Hi, Bill. Hello, Stuart. Now, Bill, I don't know how to introduce you. You used to be called Editor-in-Chief, is that right, of Western Morning News? I did. So what's your title now? Well, I was Editor of the Western Morning News and then I became Editor-in-Chief of all our Devon and Cornwall titles. Right. And those are the titles that are owned by the new entity, which is Reach PLC, or newish, is it now? Yeah. I'm recently I've got a new role. I'm now called the Marketplace Publisher, which means I'm responsible for reaches three businesses in the south of the country. And that stretches all the way from Penzance to Cambridge. Oh, wow. So reach is a very different beast to where you started in the sense that there's still the printed stuff, but it's gone very much online, hasn't it? Yeah, it's still a newspaper based business. It's still a business that owns newspapers, but it is now a multimedia content business, I suppose. And our biggest audiences by some distance are on our websites, our live brand websites. But, you know, publishing news and information now is a multi-platform business. So whether we're doing newsletters, whether it's our social media accounts, you know, there's all sorts of platforms now, whether it's video, whether it's audio. We've experts in our newsrooms now, well, some experts and some not so experts, (laughs) but, you know, people who are still engaged in the noble endeavour of regional and local journalism, which is the sort of core of our business. But how we publish it now and where we publish it and when we publish it is very different from the days I started. And it's very much instantaneous now, isn't it? News is quicker. You're not waiting for a deadline for a print run as much as you used to, I guess? No, definitely not. I mean, deadlines are every minute now. And if there are deadlines at all, most of them are artificial in the sense that we'll build deadlines into the day because we as human beings tend to work a bit better to a hard deadline, or particularly journalists do. But news is essentially live now, and you see that on our sites on all our competitor sites, you know, whether it's the BBC, you know, rolling news is how we live now, isn't it? And mm. we live with the old days of having traditional competition from other publishers or other media. Our biggest competition now is everybody. Everyone. Because, because everyone's a journalist. Everyone's a publisher. Everyone's got a camera. Everyone's got yeah. a platform. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't say everyone's a journalist, but certainly everyone is a publisher. Sorry, that was quite insulting, really, <laughs> yeah. in a, unintentionally. No, no. I sense you're a newspaper man at heart, though. Do you miss those days of the print run, the deadline? The um, I miss the newsrooms. You know, when I came in to regional journalism, my first job was at the Tiverton Gazette, which is my hometown paper. And then I quite quickly went on to the Express and Echo in Exeter. And it was the newsrooms then that were so intoxicating. You know, journalism is a great job. You know, it's a fun job. It's interesting. You meet different people. People, but it was really the newsrooms, you know, which used to be full of extraordinary, unusual minds and characters and they were amazing places to work they were quite smoky i was going to say probably not the modern appropriate workplace because i remember going into them a few years ago and they were quite sweary weren't they 
Oh, <laughs> oh yeah, you wouldn't get away with them now. Very smoky, very sweary, quite boozy. Mm. You know, if you were in the office at lunchtime in the first two or three newsrooms I worked in, you were required to go next door, go to the pub. And you'll see most old traditional newspaper offices had a pub right next door. You know, we had the Printer's Pie in mm. Exeter, which was bang next door. I can't remember what the pub next to the old Western Morning News office in Plymouth was called, but I think it was the Noah's Ark, isn't it? Yes. You know? And there's newsrooms all over the country who would say they had a news desk telephone on the bar in the local pub and that sort of thing, because but they were different times. Yeah, and nobody criticised. I think in the early days of my police career, was sort of late 80s, CID was still a very much a drinking group and you know that was just kind of the culture of the time and it's where a lot of business was done you know in terms of a lot of information was exchanged a lot of plans were cooked up in the pub i mean Mm. but then the ways of communication that we have available to us now weren't available then were they you know we couldn't have a chat on whatsapp or on messenger or you know whatever it is it's so easy now for me to talk to you isn't it yeah although there's no escape you can't get away from it can you not really. I mean, think about the changing face of the media. And how do you feel about the media giants that own news? You know, in this sort of post-truth world, there's ways that media could manipulate the truth or report things from a certain angle. How do you square that against your sort of early journalistic values? Well, I can only really square it with my own principles and my own values and what I hope we have in our newsrooms. And that's the thing, you know, I can't control CNN or Fox News and stuff like that. But I think in general, there's some quite dangerous things happening in global news publishing and that sort of stuff. And you see some of the sort of agenda-driven publishing that's been going on in the United States and the ability of someone like the ex-president of the States able to almost completely destroy the news industry. You know, the cry of fake news. I mean, we see it all the time now. It's very easy, isn't it, for anyone in authority or or anybody actually to say, well, that's fake news. And it has an element of traction. Yeah. And if you repeat Um, it often enough, it becomes true in their mind. Yeah, it does. A bit like, um, you know, anti-vax theories, whichever side of the fence. Don't get me started on that. that. (laughs) Exactly. But once you get momentum of that on social media, that sort of content and the social media algorithms are powerful enough and clever enough to seek out people who are looking for that content so suddenly you've gone from an individual voice has suddenly found millions of others who think exactly the same as them or something like that and you can see how donald trump has used that very effectively to sort of establish his brand and a set of values when everything he says is okay but once challenged it's fake or false and in recent years all the most successful politicians have known how to say manipulate the media but use the media haven't they and uh, i guess also there's that problem with just you were talking about there about sensationalism sells doesn't it even if it's a crazy statement or assertion it can be tempting surely to publish it if it's controversial or it's exciting or if someone wants to read it yeah it can because digital journalism and websites are part funded now by the number of clicks they get you know large Larger audiences mean you can attract larger revenues, you know, around some of the commercial deals we're doing and things like that. So it's tempting and you can see some businesses, that's just what they do. And I think it's a real challenge for us and it's a real challenge for our newsrooms, you know, not to get sucked into that. And one of the principles, because we get accused of it all the time, clickbait. And sometimes a couple of years ago, I think I was probably fair. Some of that, I think that was fair. But the long-term future of that, there's no future in clickbait journalism, is there? You know, mm. So bringing integrity and capitalising on, you know, what 
the regional press has always had, I think, much more than other areas of the media, which is trust. And, you know, that sense of reliability is really, really important to us. And it's not something we want to contaminate anymore. No. And how do you promote the good news stories? Because it's still true, isn't it? Bad news sells. If there's a sensationalist headline, people will, as you say, click on it. How do we get over that society where we're actually interested in the good stuff? Well, that's a really difficult question to answer. But if you are like me and you have great faith in our fellow human beings, you think, you know, there is an element of people out there who are interested enough in the good stuff. And we see it going on in people's day-to-day lives, don't we? But you're right, in a media environment, I remember having this conversation with you many years ago when you were on the force. You know, policeman does job is not a um, attractive headline. No. Policeman doesn't do job. People are yeah. very eager to read that story, aren't they? That's human nature. You know, there's a human nature. You only have to watch soap operas to see what attracts people. You know, drama and yeah. crisis and people throwing teapots at each other and that sort of stuff. Absolutely. And I get that. And in fact, it's a compliment to those people in those jobs. You know, you put teachers, policemen, nurses. They are expected to be 100% right 100% of the time. So when they don't or if they fall short of the standards, it becomes news worthy whereas there's certain jobs would never make the headlines that someone didn't assemble a washing machine correctly or well it might do now it might do, depending <laughs> yeah. on what happens yeah. i suppose yeah what the result is but i do think there has emerged and you know this is one of the good sides of digital publishing and one of the good sides of social media and it's become accelerated through the covid crisis actually is that there is now an appreciation you know, more and more people want to talk about the things that are okay. Yeah. And there's this sense, I think, particularly in the last 12 months, where people, you know, the whole sort of sense of let's be grateful for what we've got rather than think about what we could have. And, you know, all those sort of things have become more to the fore. I get that real sense in society. And we can see that on social media now. Yeah. We can see it. We've got all sorts of groups, Kind and Caring Plymouth or Inspiring Bristol or whatever those sort of Facebook groups we are. And people are all over them. Yeah, I agree. And people love being involved in them. And we've done campaigns around this. But you're right. No one remembers that when something terrible happens. And, you know, then masses of people pile in and that sort of stuff. So I think bad news Death and disaster is always going to sell. You know, we're, we're fascinated by it. Yeah, that's true. And it's not the media's fault, is it? That's the consumer's fault. But I'm like you, I am cheered by the fact that when you look through this pandemic, some of the good stuff that's come out of it, people have actually been very kind to one another. And some real heroes, you know, your Captain Tom Moores, who've come out of this, which would not normally have made news or wouldn't have had the opportunity to make news. Incredible. Well, he's a great example, actually, because, I mean, that would always have been a story and it always would have been covered. And it probably might have made the last slot on the 10 o'clock news or something like that, Mm. mightn't it? But, you know, for him, for that to have caught the mood and I can't remember how much he raised now, but it was millions, wasn't it? it 20-something million, yeah. Extraordinary. And you can see there has been this sort of new appreciation of kindness and, you know, there's definitely been more focus on the environment and how we look after each other. And I think people are beginning to ask, having not had kids in schools for three months or however long it was, I think people are beginning to ask some really constructive questions now about education and what's important in education. And it's not just about exam results. It's about working in teams or you know Mm. it's about growing up really more than anything else isn't it and growing up well yeah and we've come to realize what's important in life things and people we thought were important 
or roles we thought were important suddenly aren't when your food's not delivered or you can't get the very basics in life or, you know, carers. You know, we've always known they're underpaid and they do a great job, but it's thrown straight to the forefront now, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And if you were asked to draw up a list of key workers before this happened or, you know, essential workers in the city of Plymouth, for example, and that's thing, I bet no one would have put supermarket workers down no. on the list. No, they would now. Yeah, they would now. And suddenly you realise, you know, what are the really important cogs that make our society function and stuff like that. And uh, I think it's thrown a lot of light on, yeah, some of those really important things. Even journalists, in a sense, have been put back in the spotlight, haven't they? And proper journalism and reliable information and our classification as key workers was really important to us. I think it's important as well that we realise that you're there to ask the questions. Still to come... White from Practice Plus. And we work together so well, and that's been the real key thing that saw us through the last 12 months, is that we could have that working relationship and still have a laugh at the end of the day. Because there are times when you need that humour to diffuse everything that's been going on. Follow the Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce on Twitter at Chamber underscore Devon and search for us on LinkedIn. Make sure you don't miss out on future episodes. Hit subscribe now. It's funny, we should talk about Tom Moore. He raised 20-something million, I think, and yet a government contract went to a guy whose finder's fee was 20-something million. And you think, that is outrageous. That must frustrate you. You as a journalist must want to get under there and really expose that sort of thing. And Yeah, I think that's what we do. And the phrase, the uncomfortable truth, is sometimes what journalism is all about. You know, I mean, mm. sometimes the truth is uncomfortable for individuals or groups or society in general, if you know what I mean. I think it's vital. And I'll still say, in this country, we're lucky to have the press we've got. And there are bits of it that have not gone well. Mm. And there are certain individuals, organisations who've probably let the profession down. But that's the same anyway. The light's been shone on them too, isn't it? Yeah. You know, I think that's happened. But I think to have the press we've got in the UK makes us the country we are. And I do think we're quite hard on ourselves as a country sometimes. I really do. <laughs> really? I, I completely agree. And as a city and as a county, you know, little old Plymouth. I hear people say it all the time, oh, it's just little old Plymouth. It'll never happen here or whatever. And it's a very British thing to do ourselves down, but it's a very Plymouth thing to do ourselves down. And I was just reminded, you're talking about the uncomfortable truth. There's a phrase I love, which is, I'd rather be slapped with the truth than kissed with a lie. You know, it may be uncomfortable, but we need to hear it. Well, we do, because if you get into any sort of situation where the truth is being covered up or withheld or whatever, then you end up with situations like Jimmy Savile, which for a long time, you know, I don't care what anyone says, there must have been people. People must have known. Who didn't deal with the truth there and didn't deal with the reality. And if they look back now, they didn't do the right thing, did they? No. Tough, difficult. What do they say? The only thing required for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing. Yeah, And I think that's right. I'm sure there's a lot of people looking at themselves wishing they'd done that. So let's lighten it up. There must have been a fabulous headline you always were proud of, something you came up with, you think, oh, I'm proud of that, or proud of a story or something. When you look back, what in your journalistic career, what do you think, yeah, that was my fave? Well, the headline, that, and I still tell stories about it, I didn't write it, but it still makes me laugh now. The problem with the regional press is you can get people who've been doing the same job for a long time. <laughs> so I get a bit bored. <laughs> <laughs> and we had a sub-editor in Exeter when I was a trainee there, who'd been there forever, Lovely chap, but there I'm sure there still is a fair in Exeter called Lammas Fair. When there's a sort of parade that goes through the centre of the city when all the great and the good of the city come out in their robes and they parade behind 
essentially a pole or a mace, I'm not sure what it's called, which has got a big white glove on it. Not sure why. And the headline he wrote on the story, which he was nearly sacked for, actually, it was a preview piece that, you know, that Lammas Fair is going to happen this weekend, was, it's big white glove on a stick time again. (laughs) (laughs) And what it's true for. (laughs) And I've never forgotten that, but it just made me laugh. The things I've been involved in my career, Stuart, I think some of the things we've done when we've done campaigns to help people or communities and things like that have been the things I've been proudest of. But I've been lucky. You know, I've met and interviewed every Prime Minister since Mrs Thatcher. You don't get that sort of access or time with individuals and those sort of things. You know, I just find people like that fascinating and really interesting. And when you get to meet them, and I've been to number 10 a few times, and whenever I do go, you know, you never get blase about that. No. Whenever I go, I get quite excited. I get quite nervous, you know. It's a privilege, isn't it? It's a real privilege. Yeah. You know, even though a lot of the people you meet are extraordinary people, for one reason or another, they are also just people. You Mm. know, they are people who who oversleep, get headaches, (laughs) <laughs> drink yeah. too much on Tuesday yeah. nights who knows you know all that sort I of couldn't things. possibly comment I never do that <laughs> all the sort of things that you know you or I might do you know they are human beings like yeah. the rest of us and I think sometimes we can forget that you know, I remember when I did a, a short period of my life when I worked on Fleet Street although it wasn't in Fleet Street at all but I was working for the mail and it's a very sort of peripatetic when you're shifting on the nationals mm-hmm. used to call it then you know you never knew when you were going to get called for work and you never turned down a shift effectively in this way anyway i got a call from them saying we need someone to go and cover oasis playing at main road you remember this sort of legendary concert yeah no idea why i'd been summoned one because i didn't know much about them at all i'm sure it was, cause it was basically nobody else but you know, I got the brief. I said, yeah, of course, I'd go get yourself up to Manchester, meet the photographer. His name is X, Y and Z and that sort of thing. And you get there and then you get your access, backstage access into this massive Oasis concert. And there was, you know, the sort of celebrity party afterwards and things like that, which was nothing like as debauched and as amusing as you might find. But all these people you recognise, you know, I remember the sort of entire cast of Brookside were there. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering. I wouldn't recognise them, I must admit. Almost sort of thinking. Are you secretly telling you're a big Brookside fan? That's well, what it is. Well, you like the soaps. I think if you're a journalist, you're kind of an everything fan. Yeah. I guess you have to be. You have to be. Because if you're interested in people. Inquisitive, I guess. you've got. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in a Coronation Street house. My mum would kill me for saying this, but, you know, I grew up watching Coronation Street and throughout my life I've always been in and out of it. Mm. But they sort of stay with you, those soaps, because nothing changes and that sort of thing. So when another one comes up and people start talking about it, I'm interested in soap operas, you know, as an art form. I'm interested in television. So, you know, I always have a look. You know, I remember having a look at EastEnders. I refused to watch it for years. And then I started, and I got hooked. I can't. I, I think soap operas are a government conspiracy to make us think our lives are better because nobody's life is as bad as, no. as they are on there. No, and I did. I had to wean myself off that. No, I can't. I just can't do it. I think you must have read my questions because I was going to ask you about the people you've interviewed and who's the most famous. And I guess who's your favourite? Was there an interview you think, oh, I'm so lucky to get an interview with them or that was a coup? Probably Tony Blair. Right. We did something amazing with the Herald when the Blair government was sort of quite new. And do you remember there was that sort of remarkable sense of optimism around, yeah. you know, things can only get better. And, um, <laughs> How wrong we were. <laughs> that was my first editorship of the Herald and right. it was probably in the last stage of a print-only newsroom and that sort of thing. We had lots of staff and, and the beauty of that was it gave you great opportunities to be able to do different things. And so we cooked up this thing with Blair's people, with number 10 that we had the chance for six Herald readers to go to number 10 and ask the Prime Minister a question in person. 
So we did a competition in the paper. Wow. And we picked the questions. We tried to pick, you know, a group of people that were reflective of Plymouth. So we had, you know, I remember there was a young child who wanted to ask about the future of Seton Pool because remember it had just been yeah. shut down and then all the way up to a vet, a Falkland veteran, I think, who wanted to ask about, you know, benefits for them and that sort of stuff. So we picked all them and we trooped up there on the train, getting to number 10. Again, it was the first time I've been, you know, it's really exciting because it's yeah. number 10. Yeah, 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 it is awe-inspiring, that sort of stuff. It's an extraordinary experience when you go in because it's like sort of walking into a slightly battered North London rich person's home. Right. It's like the wealthy family that hasn't got any money, do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> the wallpaper's yeah. peeling a bit and that sort of stuff. And Tony Blair, he came in, we thought we had 20 minutes with him and he came in early, he left us two and a half hours later. Wow. I always tell this story, you know, I definitely, you know, he had an aura about him, mm. remarkably frank, brilliant in situations like that. When we left number 10 then, I remember one woman who was with us burst into tears and said, well, thank you so much, it's the most amazing yeah. It was an extraordinary experience. And to be given that sort of access, very personal conversation as well. You know, he had that ability to have you eating out of the palm of his hand, if you know what I mean. Even the hard-bitten, you know, well, not that I was that hard-bitten, but, you know, the yeah. sort of cynical journalist who wanted to doubt everything he said and things like that. It was incredible. I heard Bill Clinton's real talent was, even if you only met him for a few seconds, for that few seconds, you felt like you were the most important person in the world and that he was totally interested in you and what you had to say. And people said they were a bit sort of awestruck by him. You know? And you can see that in him, can't yeah. you? You know, yeah. you can see Some that in him. Some people just have it. So who would you like to interview? Who do you admire? Who do you think, oh, I'd just love to spend some time and chat with them and getting behind that? I'm obsessed with sport. You're a cricket fan. I am a massive cricket fan. Yeah. And I've always had this idea that I'd like to spend a year of my life and in that year you'd sort of pick one event, big event, mm. and go and interview the person, you know, in that event. So if you went to motor racing now, it would be Lewis Hamilton. Obviously, yes. You know, whoever's the golfer of the moment. Mm. Those sort of people. I mean, I'm fascinated by I love politics. Hence why I always fuse so much about the Prime Minister I've met and politicians. They're all incredibly interesting people, I think. But sports people too, particularly those people, the Hamiltons, the Andy Murrays, the Nick Falders, you know, those people who've just really risen above even the elite sportsmen in an already elite field, yeah. I think are fascinating. So I think probably Andy Murray. Really? Yeah. Okay. Andy Murray is not the best tennis player in the world. Mm. You no, know, all the most talented or that sort of thing. But what he achieved. He's hardworking. He's one of the most hardworking. Oh. Yeah. Which often you'll find is the measure of the success. You know, they're saying that people could put just about any of the Formula One drivers in that current Mercedes car and they'd win. But Lewis Hamilton has won, whether it's good, bad, indifferent, over and over again. He works incredibly hard. He's very professional. He applies himself. Yeah. And for me, I think it would be Barack Obama. I'd love to meet Barack Obama and I think that would be a privilege. I'm sort of, I think I'd be slightly awe inspired by him. I agree. I'd love to meet both the Obamas actually. And I think, I mean, that's another thing that I've always been fascinated by my whole life is America. You know, the United States is an extraordinary country, isn't it? It's an extraordinary yeah. superpower. You know, it's sort of cultural contribution to the world is both brilliant and terrible. Yeah, it's a real yeah. thing. There's a fabulous urban myth about, and it is an urban myth, but it's a good story, so I'll tell you about Michelle and Barack going into a pizza house, and the owner of the pizza house recognises them, or she recognises him, because it was an ex-boyfriend, and Barack says to Michelle, you see, 
if you'd married him, you could have co-owned this pizza restaurant. And she said, if I'd married him, he'd have been president of the United States. And I thought that was a lovely way. Anyway, there we go. We're going to wrap up in a moment. But I just want to ask you about the Southwest. What's your favourite bit? You went to Fleet Street, you've come back. Yeah. What do you love about the Southwest and what frustrates you about it? I love the countryside. I love the moors, the coastline. You know, I love where I grew up. You know, I grew up on a farm in the middle of nowhere in between Tiverton and South Malton. So... I love the sort of rural people, the rural communities. If I'm driving through Holsworthy on market day, I'll still drop into the market. And mm-hmm. just those sort of rhythms of country life and farm life and things like that, I feel there's something quite special about that. What frustrates me about it? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I think some of the stuff I've been involved in in Plymouth, I think some of the stuff I've been involved in on a regional basis as well in trying to attract investment or recognition or, you know, all those sorts of things that you and I talked about on many occasions. It was a loaded question because I was trying to get you towards that great southwest and that sort of sense that we, I feel there's an east-west divide now, never mind this north-south divide. I do feel we're a bit ignored down here. Yeah, I think we are. Well, no, I don't think we are. We definitely are. Yeah. You know, there's no doubt about that. And that's got to do with population and the size of our cities and how many MPs we've got and that sort of stuff, which is understandable but frustrating. But I think... As a region, you know, we're partly to blame as well yeah. because it is still hard to get us to join up. Mm. It is still hard to decide what the southwest is. <laughs> yes. I know government thinks it starts at Swindon, but if you said that to a Cornishman, they'd think you had a cuckoo sticking out your forehead. Yeah, and might even have bits of Wales in it. I'm now beginning to... Apparently so, yeah. yeah. I'm afraid we've kind of run out of time, so we've got to wrap it up there. But, you know, the Chamber will work with you in a role now to promote the Southwest. Whatever we can do, it's great to work with you. I'm fascinating to hear your stories, and I think we could talk for hours about the people you've interviewed, and I hope we'll do this again one day. But, Bill Martin, thanks very much. Thank you very much. And now, Chambermaid, introducing business owners from across the Southwest. Hello there and welcome back to the second half of our In Conversation With podcast. This is Chamber Made, where we speak to chamber members about their business, about how they start, about what inspires them and all that sort of stuff. And I've not actually met our next guest. All my other guests I've either met or I know or we've had chats before, but I know nothing about you, I'm afraid, Mark. This is Mark White, who's the hospital director at Practice Plus Group. Welcome. Thank you very much. So in my research, I saw that not only you hospital director of Practice Plus Group and previous hospitals before that, but you also worked at Riverfoot Organics. So what took you from vegetables to people? Career decision, really. It was I wanted a slight change in where I was working. I enjoyed my time at Riverfoot Organics. And, you know, my career history is littered, if you like, with quality businesses working with them. I'm an accountant by profession. But yes, I really enjoy that, being able to make a difference and working for a quality firm every single time. But yes, it was just a choice I made at that time that I wanted to try something slightly different and was able to be given the opportunity at what was then Care UK, the Peninsula Treatment Centre. Now, as you quite elegantly put it, Practice Plus Group Hospital Plymouth. Right. Uh, I've got to be careful. Sometimes our receptionists make the mistake of calling it Platypus Hospital. Platypus. (laughs) But we do manage to get the right name most of the time. But yes, the, the opportunity came up there to work as their senior finance manager and I jumped at the chance. 
I read all about it, I understood what the hospital was trying to achieve and all the rest of it, and it appealed to me as that. The quality of the interaction with the patients, the quality of the surgical outcomes. Yeah, I'll come back to that in a minute, actually, because I think there's an interesting point about that. You just reminded me of something about calling it platypus. I used to work when I was a police officer in an internal organisation group Mm -hmm. department called Crime Bureau, and it was the Crime Bureau Plymouth. And we only ever answered the phone to internal calls, so this didn't go Mm -hmm. out to the public, so nobody write in and complain or anything. But I was just aware after all, you know when you hear what you want to hear, Mm -hmm. someone's answering the phone. One of the ladies in our office was answering the phone. I thought she was saying Crime Bureau Plymouth, but what she was actually saying was crappy old Plymouth. (laughs) (laughs) But people don't hear it. They hear what they're expecting to hear. Anyway, I'm sorry. I've gone off on a complete tangent, but it just reminded me of that Mm -hmm. and made me laugh. I mean, you touched on other quality organisations. You work for a bed manufacturer, is that right? Yeah, cars. A, yeah, local bed manufacturer, the one... The one. You can mention them. This is not a commercial station or BBC. Yeah. It's Vicebring, I think. It was Vicebring, yes. Yeah. And also for Ocean, the BMW franchise as well. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure they're both members, so that's fine. That's we can fine. mention them. Yeah. <laughs> if they're not, they will be by the end sure. of this. Did I read that Practice Plus Group is the largest independent provider of healthcare in England? Is that right? It's, yeah, as far as the whole group is, yes, it is. We've not only got hospitals and further eight different hospitals like ourselves dotted around the country. We're also a major provider of 111 out of hours services, GP practices. So yes, we are a very, very big player in the healthcare market. So how you set up, you deliver services to the NHS, but you're a private healthcare provider? We were set up originally in the, what, 15 years ago, 16 years ago now. We were due to have our 15 year anniversary last year, but something got in the way. (laughs) So yeah, we were set up as part of the IST rollout by the then Labour government to help support the National Health Service. So yes, we are privately owned, but the vast majority of our patients are NHS patients. So patients can make that choice to actually come to us to have their NHS operations. We do offer a very small amount of private healthcare. We're not on the same scale as the other private providers per se, Mm. and our offering is as good a quality but the pricing is slightly different, if I put it like that. No, I understand what you're trying to say there. Well, that kind of scuppers my next question, because I actually assumed, how bad of me to assume, that you were a private healthcare provider, and therefore you were like the other private healthcare providers, and it was about profit and what have you. And I was going to ask you, you know, are we seeing the future of healthcare? Is it going private? Are we? I suppose I can still ask you, is this the way healthcare is going, that we're going to have private providers more and more, and that the NHS as we know it, are we seeing the death of the NHS as we know it? I don't think we're seeing the death of the NHS as we know it, I think what the COVID crisis has brought into very sharp focus is how the NHS works. Because I'm not sure if you're aware, but for the last almost 12 months, all of the private healthcare providers have been providing their capacity, their facility, their infrastructure to the NHS to help support the NHS throughout this COVID crisis. We've been exactly the same. So no, I don't think you're seeing the death of the NHS. But what I think you'll see is, hopefully, from our perspective, is you'll see a element of quiet reflection of how the NHS needs to deal with these sort of crises going forward. And what we will see is the very real crisis of huge waiting lists now. Yeah, I'm afraid there's, there's nothing we can get away from that. You know, waiting lists have gone absolutely massive. I mean, we all know the NHS needs to change. Some mm. of the change I'm sure will be good. And it's not a criticism of the NHS. Mm. Nope. I'm a huge fan. I just think it has thrown into sharp focus that things needed to change. If you set out to design a national healthcare system now, it wouldn't look like the NHS because no. it's morphed over time into a huge, unwieldy beast. Mm-hmm. I mean, you mentioned the response to the pandemic. How did Practice Plus Group respond? What did you do? Well, we changed ourselves from primarily an elective orthopaedic centre within a week of 
of being seconded to the NHS back in March last year. A week later, we were undertaking urgent and cancer surgeries for the local trust. And I'm hugely proud of my team. We've undertaken the last 12 months circa 12, 14 brand new specialties they hadn't done before through our theatres, through our outpatients, onto the ward. So, yes, we've been hugely supportive of the whole of the healthcare. It's been a real challenge for the team, dealing with the mechanics of COVID, if you like, you know, having plastic screens in front of you. Mm. As we have now. As we have now, yeah. Which is very odd. So we're in Fresh Air Studios, Mm. COVID-secure studios. Everything's been sanitised. We're not allowed to shake hands. I've never met you before, and we've kind of waved (laughs) at you in a distance, so sorry. So you were saying, so what you've done is changed the way you've worked. Changed the way we've worked. You know, we've got COVID screens up temperature testing, everyone has to wear masks, limiting the number of foot through through the unit, one-way system through the unit. We're hugely proud of you know what we've achieved throughout this COVID crisis and how we've had to change. But the most fundamental change is realistically we haven't been able to undertake our normal work, our mm. normal NHS work for almost nine, ten months now mm. because we have been supporting the NHS and gladly supporting the NHS to help them with the urgence, the cancers mm. and the really long waiting patients. Was it scary either personally for you, for your staff? I mean, it must have been terrifying. Hugely scary, hugely terrifying. I'm very, very fortunate. I've got a very good senior management team that I work with. Some of them are experienced ex-military and we almost approached it. Well, we did approach it as a military operation. Mm. We were going to be going on pseudo deployment, if you like. Yeah. And that was the way that we managed it. Yes, it was incredibly scary for everyone. And, you know, we have to be aware of that. And we have to be aware of the impact it's having on staff changing the way that they normally do, but also the external factors that are influencing them. People are tired. People are hugely fed up of not being able to do what they would normally do. You know, man is a social character. They need to have that social interaction. And for a lot of people, that's gone. And it's not just the patients we're seeing, but the staff as well are having those issues. Huge effect on their health and well-being. Mm -hmm. I mean, I find it. And, you know, a single man, I live on my own with me and the dog. And I find that really, really tough Mm because, as you can tell, I'm curious. I'm outgoing. I like to meet people. And so this is a delight, even though I'm not allowed to shake your hand and you're several feet away from me, it's a delight to meet another human being. Yeah, so, yeah. But it has been particularly tough for people on their health and well-being. And, so, and I've also noticed that people want to help. Yeah. So the business community, you know, mm-hmm. some of them, I don't like this word, but it's the very trendy word, pivoted what they were doing mm-hmm. into, you know, we had Solcom Gin making hand sanitizer. Yeah. We helped source PPE for St. Luke's mm-hmm. Hospice as a chamber. If you'd like to feature on a future episode of In Conversation With, send an email to info at freshairstudios.com. Did the business community stand up for you? Did your supply chain yeah, lean in? We were very, very fortunate. You know, our supply chain was incredibly supportive of everything we did. You know, we had everything we needed when we needed. But I'd also like to say a huge thank you to the Plymouth business community as well, because we had, like the other hospitals in the city, we had door drops of crisps, fruit, veg, you know, all mm. these sort of things. I didn't ask for it. It's just businesses coming up and giving. Because they want to help. Yeah. What we did as a company is we wanted to support our staff as well. So I was able to go out and source from small local businesses gifts for my staff. Mm. The one which was really sticks out in my mind is we went to a local nursery and purchased a load of shrubs and flowers and all the rest of it just to give to the staff. It was just something slightly different for us to say 
thank you. But it helped the local community as well. You're supporting the supply chain, which is really important. Yeah. You know, their natural business is Mm -hmm. gone. So, no, that is hugely appreciated. In our pre-chat, you had a terrible admission uh, (laughs) that you support a football team that isn't Plymouth Argyle. Yeah, I'm afraid I do. I'm a Talk United supporter. I'll put it out there. That's probably, you know, upset a lot of people. We'll forgive you. We'll forgive (laughs) Well, I I think Plymouth looks on us as their favourite nephew. I'll put it like that. I'm the chief executive of Devon and Plymouth. (laughs) As long as you support a Devon club, you're all right by me. That's fine. So that's okay. Mm -hmm. No, no, that's good. And what do you love about our region? What about our city and our county? Because you're local. I've always lived in Devon. I've always lived up in Torbay. And I come down every day to work in Plymouth. What do I love about Devon? I love living in Devon. We all had opportunities to move away for various reasons, for business or, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever. But I've always thought, do I want to bring my children up anywhere else? And the answer to that is no. no. You know, you can get just about everywhere you want to relatively easily and we'll talk about the train line at some point in time no doubt Mm -hmm. but Devon itself it's such a welcoming county you've got everything you want you've got the moors you've got the sea Mm. you know you've got cities that you can go and shop or visit or whatever but it's the people it really is the people You've got to scratch the surface a little bit. You know, I've worked in Plymouth now for yeah. about seven or eight years, and I'm just about becoming accepted. But people do yeah, welcome hearts. you. Big hearts. And I recognise that. And I think Plymouth's got a lot going for it. You it know, has. funny enough, I spoke to Luke Pollard, and he was talking about Plymouthians and, you know, how they are actually proud of their city. They don't always mm. show it in an overt way, but yeah. they are proud. And Devonians themselves, you know, I remember, I've been in Devon since I was, I think, about eight. And I can remember coming and just sensing a completely different welcoming attitude. Mm. And I love coming back here when I've been away and you meet Devonians and you Mm. think, yeah, this is the place to be. You're right. My fellow chief executives across the country get very jealous when I end a conference call by saying, I'm just off, I'll be kayaking in 10 minutes, you know, on the sea because they can't wherever Mm. they are in their smoky industrial towns, poor them. (laughs) Um, So what's the best bit of business advice you've ever been given or general advice, but I don't want to get too personal. I mean, (laughs) business advice probably you've been given or would give. given and i probably would give it as well is listen to the experts but don't be afraid to make your own decisions and you've lived by that i've tried to yes especially Mm. in my role i'm not a clinician but i have got very very good experts around me who can advise me on certain aspects but as i said i think don't be afraid to make a decision you know Mm. people are poor vacuums and you can get a decision made the nine tenths of the way to having a successful outcome definitely i don't want to refer back to my previous career which i seem to all the time i don't know why because a very long time ago but i was a officer and I remember in riot training you'd be there behind your riot shields bricks mm. bottles petrol bombs flying at you and you soon got to realize that when they were training the commanders that the mm. commanders you liked working for the ones that made a decision yeah. and it didn't even matter if it was the wrong decision because you yeah. soon realize it's the wrong decision you can do a 180 yeah. but when you stand still you're mm-hmm. just a target it all yeah. falls apart you've got to keep moving you've got to make decisions and people respect that and i respect you for working with doctors and i can say this because my brother's a doctor that they're an interesting bunch aren't they love being managed don't oh, they doctors they, love uh, being told what yeah, to do definitely love being told what to do love being told <laughs> when to be at a certain point in time and where yeah yeah i sometimes think they don't realize what a clock is occasionally but you know we get there yeah that takes some interesting managing so your background's an accountant isn't it yeah so and please don't take this wrong way but i don't always associate accountants as necessarily being good with people as people mm-hmm. people yeah is that something that did actually come naturally to you or have you to learn it as to manage people no it's always come naturally to me i'm probably not your typical accountant in that i always firmly believe that to be able to understand the numbers i need to understand what the business is actually doing mm. so when i've worked at these other businesses i've taken out time to be on the shop for 
floor, you know, and I've also taken time to be in the theatre as far as the hospital is concerned mm. to actually see, touch, feel, obviously not touch, but... <laughs> well, hopefully not. <laughs> the surgery, you know, spend some time in each of the different departments to understand what's going on at the shop floor. And, you know, the way I manage people is very much have that smile on my face, conversation with them, try to remember something about them so people feel as if they can talk to me. Mm. It's such an important point, and you touched on that. I haven't got a financial background, mm. but I'm a chief executive of a small business, the Chamber, mm. and I rely massively on my financial manager. And the finance manager is actually, I realise, understands the business better than anyone else in the business. Mm-hmm. They all know their specific part particularly yeah. well, but a good finance manager understands the business, oh, yeah. and so I rely on her. Well, that's the point massively. I was making earlier on about my whole exec team. I've got a brilliant team, experienced medical director, experienced head of nursing, operations manager, and senior finance manager. They are a very brilliant team, and we work together so well. And that's been the real key thing that saw us through the last 12 months, is that we could have that working relationship and still have a laugh at the end of the day. Mm. Because there are times when you need that humour to diffuse everything that's been going on. Do you know, I heard from a Navy commander once who told me that the Navy teach three types of, I don't want to use the word leadership, because leadership is one of the words, but they differentiate between command, management and leadership. And they say command is just the authority that comes with the rank. You know, you've got the authority Mm -hmm. legally to order something to happen. Management is just about using resources. And anyone can manage, not necessarily well, but anyone can use Mm -hmm. resources. Leadership is that bit where people want to follow you and believe in you. And that's the difficult bit Mm -hmm. to get. And it's a very intangible thing. I don't say I've got it right. I like to learn every day about it. But you must be doing something right if you're getting doctors <laughs> to follow you and to say, hey. I hope so. But, it, you know, the doctors are just one small part. Mm. We've got the nurses. I look at everyone in the unit as the same. You know, mm. the doctors are the strikers of the team, but we need everyone else in that team to work together. That's a nice way of calling them prima donnas. No, 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 no. no, no. I hope no, I haven't got any doctors <laughs> listening to this podcast. I'm going to get lynched. No, I don't mean that. But I know what you mean. They are, they get the sort of fame, don't they? Yeah. It's very rare you hear about the goalkeeper or the defender, yeah. but it's always the striker that gets the fame. But mm-hmm. actually, they don't get there without the rest of the team, yeah, do precisely. they? precisely. And that's the point we try and make. It is one team. And that's what came across very, very clearly. We were very fortunate to be awarded uh, outstanding rating by CQC. Well, well done. We were the first independent sector hospital in the country to have it. And as far as I'm aware, we're still the only Devon hospital to have it. And one of the comments they made was that it felt like a team and a family, mm. you know, and that's what we try and get to. You know, we spend more time with our work family than we do a lot of the time with our real family. Mm. So to have that recognised, I felt was hugely important and really, really gratifying for everyone in the team at Practice Plus Group. Yeah, I get it. I think that's wonderful. And I describe the chamber as a family. I often in my weekly video update, mm-hmm. I say to people, you know, your chamber family's here for you. And people want to belong to a community. They want mm-hmm. to feel part of something, don't they? But if they just feel like an automaton and a drone, that is not motivating in any way. In fact, the very title HR I hate. Human resources. I'm not a human resource. I'm a person. When did we change from personnel to HR and why? I don't know. And that's been hugely important in the last 12 months, as I said Mm. before, you know, because we haven't had that social interaction outside of the work. So we need to ensure that we have that in work. Yeah, definitely. And well done on doing that. So I suppose I ought to ask you a little bit about what you want your legacy to be. When you look back and you've either retired or moved on to your next role or whatever, what will you want to say? I'm proud of that. That's what we did. Really, I'd like the hospital to be recognised 
recognised as being the best in the West for orthopaedic surgery, for leading the way in elective surgery, mm. for supporting the whole of the deaf community. Because it's important that we see patients from Plymouth and we see you know thousands of patients from Plymouth, NHS patients, but we also can offer to the wider Devon community as well. So to me, to have that legacy of not just being the best in Plymouth, the best in Devon, but we want to be the best in the West. Well, if you've got a CQC outstanding, you're well on the way. I, I hope say. so. Well, look, it's been an absolute pleasure to meet you. And I didn't say this to you at the start because it would be massive pressure on you. But I asked my team who I should interview and they said, interview Mark. <laughs> and, uh, and so no pressure. You've passed with flying colours. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us. Pass on, for, please, from the business community with all our hearts. Thank you to your team. Please pass it on to your team. We are really appreciative of our health service at the moment and of all our key workers. And we've become to realise this pandemic, haven't we, what's important. Yeah. We've always known that doctors and nurses are important. We've come to realise that the person who cleans the hospital is important. Yeah. The person that delivers the food to the hospital is important. Mm-hmm. The person who delivers your Tesco delivery is massively important. So it's been a bit of a reset, and I hope we continue to support our health workers. And, and please pass on our thanks to them. I will do, and thank you very much. Thank you. In Conversation With is produced by Fresh Air Studios. Full audio production services for podcasts, live links, and corporate communications. Visit freshairstudios.com. Presented by Stuart Elford. Produced and engineered by Paul Philpott. Edited and mixed by Martin Burgess-Moon. Production support by Lisa Hartwell. Copyright Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce and Fresh Air Studios Limited. All rights reserved. 